Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and I'm here today with my lovely colleague and co-host Michelle. Hello Michelle. Hi Stephanie, lovely to be here. Um, and so we are going to continue a tradition which I think is our third straight year of doing this perhaps, which is absurd. Um, how did yesterday. I know, we were so young then. <laughs> um, and, and that tradition is talking about our favourite books of the previous year. So that is 2019, since we are now in the uncharted territory of the 2020s. So, Michelle. Look, I think this year it's an unprecedented one where my reading was it was was sparse. It was it was yes. Twenty nineteen was a challenging year, and it was a challenging year for the world, and I think us and as it, well. It <laughs> we are part of the reading. world. Yeah, yes, it impacted <laughs> on my reading, and so I have actually come with only two titles. Um, and not from 2019, although I think actually this one, it's actually 220, um, wow. amazingly. But um, these were the books that when I lay at, on, you know, sort of lay down and stared at the ceiling, they were the ones that really... That you stared at the ceiling at? Yeah, they were the ones <laughs> that came to mind that I thought, well, actually they were memorable, um, you know, just a little bit... Uh, life changing, I think. Just well, that is good. Yeah, life changing yeah, is yeah. excellent. It's rare yeah, too. The, the ones that make you see the world differently. So that, that's how I will describe the two titles that I've chosen. Well, I had a year of I read a lot, but it was mostly for research. I didn't get as much leisure reading time as I would ideally have liked, um, because my current project that I'm working on requires me to read hundreds and hundreds of bad novels. <laughs> Um, some good novels and one of them is actually a novel I read for research but that I really loved anyway so why don't I start listing novels um, and the first novel I'm well, the first novel I'm going to talk about is not a novel it's a memoir um, I did not read it for research this was my leisure reading and this is Know My Name by Chanel Miller now Chanel Miller um, was the Stanford rape victim Oh. Um, she was sexually assaulted by Brock Turner outside um, at St on the campus of Stanford, um, outside a party. And she had previously been known as Emily Doe um, in the media reporting. She Her name had not been known. And um, she her case was very um, well covered in the media and internationally. And she, um, primarily because of the victim impact statement that she read um, that was subsequently published by BuzzFeed. So this is the first time that she's revealed her actual identity. And this is a novel about, not a novel, a memoir about her experiences. Um, she, I listened to the audiobook, which was um, read by Chanel Miller, which was um, an incredible experience. And she's an excellent writer. She's a beautiful writer divorced from the circumstances that happened to her she's just an incredible stylist um and she has such a incredible voice and her memoir is brilliant i found it hard to listen to in this case because i listened to the audiobook um but beautiful and affirming and disturbing and it made me so angry and it also made me really sad but also in the end i think hopeful um, she talks a lot about um, one of the reasons why the case became so big is because a lot of the media discourse was around the fact that um, the rapist Brock Turner was a swimmer. 
and everyone was you know not everyone but a lot of the media discourse was like oh but he's so promising <gasps> he's such a great swimmer um you know it was one night in his life he can't you know ruin a man's life because of this slip up and she takes that on in a very pointed way and it just made me so mad about the stupid media discourses around sexual assault and it was so clever and so searing and she's in a way she's also funny even though that sounds odd but um she's just got this great individual voice and she actually talks about part of her recovery from this experience was um doing stand-up comedy actually and you can see why that would be something that she would do because she's just got that kind of um real I don't know, a real character to her writing. Like, she's got such a great... You can hear her voice really strongly in all of her work, um, which is why the victim impact statement, I think, became such a viral sensation when it was published on BuzzFeed because it seemed to capture so much of people's experiences but also was really individual in the way that it was expressed and argued, I suppose. Um, So I just absolutely loved, 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 loved this book. I think everybody should read it. It's a kind of book that... I think that women tend to read um, because I think a lot of women have had experiences like she has, but I hope men read it. But also just the ability to articulate an experience yeah. and then, you know, sort of write back. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. because I, I think that's what's often missing is you, you sort of, that terrible um, you know, sort of media discourse circulates and there's an absence of, of you know, sort of that eloquent response mm. Um, that sort of puts it in its place. And so, yeah. I mean, yeah, I have to, I shall have to keep an eye out. Yeah, that. yeah. Um, she's she's going to be, yeah, she's going to be the All About Women Festival in March this year. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing her there. And, you know, she doesn't write, she writes in this really individual style and it's really beautiful and searing and confronting. But it's also quite simple. Like the one line that really stands out for me is that she's talking about how, like, a lot of, again, a lot of the media discourse was around, well, she'd been drinking at the party. And, you know, there's oh, same old tired crap that's thrown at rape, that has been thrown at rape victims for centuries. Um, and she says the, the consequence of drinking too much is a hangover. Yeah. <laughs> the consequence is not rape. No. Oh, and the simplicity yeah. and the beauty of that is... Yeah, yeah. Because no. that is true. But yet, we're still here. We're still asking, you know, did did you drink? What were you wearing? Um, you know, how great is your rapist? That sort of thing. Well, uh, that's, um, that is a title that I am definitely going to put on my 2020 reading 2020 list. 2020 reading list. Um, Chanel Miller, you, know my name. Stephanie, yeah. my first... Um, book that I'd like to talk about is a novella. Yes. Uh, it's called Snow Dog Foot. And Three excellent things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when you put them all together. Yes. Um, by Claudio Morandini and translated from the Italian by Jay Ockenden. Um, it's, I actually subscribe to uh, Perrine uh, Press and they sort of have a remit of, um, you know, sort of firstly finding, I guess, gems of novels from around the world and translating them into English. Mm. Um, this was this actually won a prize, a translation 
prize oh, well. um, that's how this particular title came um, to be translated into the English and the, the, the remit is very much to find stories that can be read in around the same time that it takes to watch a film so, right. so these aren't your big blockbuster thousand no, page novels. No, no, no. And you know that they're often quite intense, uh, you know, sort of they're surprising, quirky, um, always beautifully written. Um, it is pleasingly short. I can see the book on the table here. <laughs> and actually, whereas I may not have had a year of um, uh, reading enormously, mm. um, these titles, which I think come to me maybe three, four times a year, um, I've always enjoyed them and it was it was just lovely to have something arrive home yes um, i love getting mail don't you yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and because i sort of forget that i subscribe it's always a pleasant surprise when it arrives oh it's that time and then of course i can actually take it home and read it within an evening and mm. uh yeah it's 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 one of those little sort of treats to self over the year and i think they do a fantastic job and they're also really beautiful books Mm. Um, to hold, to read. It is. It does, it does look lovely. Um, you know, sort of the thoughtful in terms of their production values, environmentally, ecologically. Um, and this book is actually uh, set in the Italian Alps, mm. um, and it, it's actually about a an old loner outsider. Um, who lives in a cabin on his own, has pretty much lived on his own um, since the, the war um, when he sort of took to the, took to the, um, took to the hills to avoid uh, sort of German occupation. And okay. um, yeah. so that's sort of where he learned his solitary way of being. Although the feeling is, is that actually by nature, he was always... Um, you know, sort of solitary and outsider, although he had the brother. and he, So he spent a, quite a few years living in mines um, uh, and underground and mm. sort of then ends up in uh, old age, which is where we pick up the story. Um, and it's, it's, it's viscerally told, not just because you've got this sort of quite epic scenery, but also because we have the detail of what it is to live um, in this reclusive existence where uh, if you're squeamish, you might want to block your ears, where you haven't cut your toenails to the point at which they blacken and crisp Ew. off in your socks. So, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a visceral... But hang on, can't, can't you just cut your toenails even if you live alone? <laughs> this is the particularity of this character is that he's actually, and at one point he actually lives off his own filth, so he's actually Ew. licking his skin because... Um, you had me at living alone in a heart. And I was like, this sounds great, but then the well, toenail thing... The, the snow, because he ends up snowed in and we sort of encounter him as he's heading down to the village to buy what we think are his first lot of supplies to keep him going through the winter that he keeps in his um, right. in his barn, and actually he arrives in the in the in the shop uh, with his little wad of money, and the woman says, "What are you doing back here?" And of course, we sort of discover that along the way he's actually losing his memory as well. And so the the technique and the effortlessness of the prose, um, the the wonderful manipulation of perspective, where we go from this really quite close focalization and we're inside the experiences of this character to you know sort of these judicious moments when we're taken to the you know sort of the the next hilltop of the Alps. 
it, it just makes it a compelling read. I, mm. I mean, sometimes it's compelling because it's awful. Um, sometimes it, it, it's, it's the language and the imagery, which is just so, um, so breathtaking. And of course, it, uh, it's going to sound like it, it's, it's going to go, you know, sort of a trite direction. Yeah. But he actually ends up with a dog. Hence the title. Hence the title. And I will give away, um, I don't think I'm giving anything away, a foot also comes into play because they're so, they're just nestled into sort of, I guess, a little enclave of the Alps where avalanches fall left, right and centre. Right, actually things can... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. and interesting. Yeah, look, it, it is because it's it's just a sort of a world away. It's 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 remote. It's surprising. It completely transports you, and it's it's beautifully written. So, Snow Dog Foot by Claudio Morandini. Um, yeah, I couldn't put it down. Didn't put it down. Loved it. It sounds excellent. Yeah, I yeah. know why you said before that that was kind of your dream on steroids. <laughs> Because we have been a uh, gentle listener. We have been toying with the idea of running away and... Uh... The foraging, the foraging. <laughs> and it <laughs> did, you know, not even the detail because at some point he ran... Because obviously, especially with a sort of dementia, etc., and the fact that he takes in this dog, um, ticks. And the dog actually ends up uh, um, being a sort of a partner in conversation. Um, oh, and we awesome. realize I like that, a good dog. Yeah. yeah, well, look, and the snow, and it, it, we what what you sort of realize is that this, it, and I think it's the, the totally um, entrancing way that he tells this story, so that you're a hundred percent believing that somebody who lives alone for so long ends up talking to different sounds. You know, mm, yeah, responding yeah, yeah. to different mm. sounds, and you sort of understand that on one hand, the dog is actually just you know, sort of um, the old man, you know, a voice of the old man, but at the same time it is the dog. And it, it's, it's just, I really enjoyed it um, because it's not something that you read every day. And yeah. I am so grateful for that experience. Yeah, and I can understand. And because the world is so noisy, I think it's nice to have a quiet book. Yes, quiet and, uh, yeah, and, and also it is a, it's a story of human filth. And that is a wonderful thing because I think as humans we live inured from all of this. Yes. You know, this this perception of ourselves is so reliant upon all the luxuries that we have. Yes. And so we don't have to think about ourselves as animals and yeah. Strip them away and um, you know, sort of give me that sort of uh, the the grime and 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 the filth and the relentlessness <laughs> of, of what it is to be human without all the maintenance. Yes. <laughs> because cutting your toes is maintenance, and if you're not that doing maintenance, any maintenance, true. that's that's if you're not taking those socks off, you're not going to cut the toenails. Yes. <laughs> well, look, I'm all for you know a bit of human filth, but uh, <laughs> I think I will continue to cut my toenails. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. Look, look, I'm surprised you didn't end up with gangrene. Perhaps you did. I don't know, but, yes. but you know, so perhaps there'll be a sequel. <laughs> Summertime sequel because yeah. this is actually set in the in winter. Hence, not snow. taking off your socks. Um, hence the snow. Hence the snow. 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 Um, so yeah, that 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 was my number one number one um, pick. read. Yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. You, you always bring interesting titles. <laughs> well, I have chosen my second title is probably as diametrically opposite to that as it's possible to get, <laughs> and this is a YA novel by Hannah Capen, came out in twenty nineteen, called uh, The Dead Queen's Club. 
And the Dead Queen's Club sounds like it has the most ridiculous premise that you've ever heard, which is the wives of Henry VIII. Yes, this was a research book for me. <laughs> the wives of Henry VIII are high school girls. And it is narrated by Anna Cleves, Henry's fourth wife, the wife that he got rid of because she was allegedly too ugly for him. Um, he's a good one to talk, yes, we know. And it, anyway, so it tells the story of um, the first three wives who predate the action of the novel, and the it, it takes us through the last three wives. It is so funny and so clever and so feminist and so perfect. I absolutely loved it. I thought, what is this going to be like? Henry VIII and Boleyn at high school. And yet it was pretty much the cleverest, most self-aware, most metatextual, most self-reflexive novel that I have read for my entire project on Anne Boleyn. Wow, that is that is yeah. high praise because what would be the number of books that you've read? Because it is about I reckon I've read about two to three hundred novels about Anne Boleyn, and it is I would say one of the best, if not the very best, and it features the best line um, about this this whole story that I've ever read, which is the story of Anne Boleyn can be whatever the storyteller wants it to be, for better or worse, which is true, and you know the epigraph to my book um, so it was very yeah it's just so clever it's so funny it, it imagines the the wives as like a girl gang who are going to take henry the eighth down because his girlfriends they're not wives because they're at high school um keep dying well two of them are dead and it seems like it's accidental but then they start working out maybe it's not so accidental and also he's a bit of a bad boyfriend and so they team up under Operation Desdemona, another murdered wife there for you, um, and they use social media um, in order to bring him down. And it's so, it's just so clever, so feminine, so feisty, really funny, lots of great jokes in there. The more, I mean, you can read it and know nothing about Henry VIII and, and all of that. I was that. actually going to ask yeah. that, how much, you know, you don't, do you, you don't require to, you know, how much of the humour, the, the, the inside of Oh, jokes. you get more out of it. You absolutely so she really get more knows out of it. Stuff, she yeah. knows her stuff. It is so well-researched. Um, she takes on the kind of posthumous reputation of the queens and, and like sort of inverts it in a funny way. Like she talks about how Jane Seymour, she used to consider Jane Seymour, the narrator who is Anne of Cleves, um, says that she used to consider Anne Seymour, who is like the most boring of Henry's wives in the kind of popular imagination. She says that she's the human equivalent of a pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> um, but then later reassesses that, and then she talks about how, you know, she thought about Anne Boleyn as like a sexy KGB operative um, who's going to, like, steal your man. And then she realises that's not true. And So it takes on, like, historical mythology and undermines it in this really funny, it's witty, it's well-written, it's clever. It's just, it was, like, beautiful. I, and I've read some really turgid historical novels in the past year, like really awful, re repetitive crap. Was she inspired <laughs> because she, she has a background in history? You know, she I think she was other... interested. She's writing a um, the new, her new book, which comes out this year, um, twenty twenty, is called Foul Is Fair, and it's um, a rewriting of Lady Macbeth, um, the character of Lady Macbeth in high school. So I've already pre-ordered that. But, yeah, I think she was just inspired by... I mean, look, the, Anne Boleyn has become like an internet kind of feminist icon of the past. Um, and so I think that she's 
she's looking at that and looking at the way that the queens have been kind of re-established or re reimagined in the 21st century. And it's just, it, it's just, like, again, it's just so clever. She's really, she, she knows her stuff. She's researched it. It's very, there are a lot of in-jokes. And um, at the moment in Sydney, there is a musical on at the Opera House called Six, and that is a musical about the wives of Henry VIII, which everybody should see because it is delightful. And it is the closest, it, it's, you know, reimagines the wives of Henry VIII as a, um, basically a pop band. <laughs> a girl group. And Dead Queen's Club is really along those lines. And both of them are making, like, looking at history and looking at the ways in which women have been treated in, in history and, in you know, turning their stories upside down, as well as, you know, responding to things like Me Too, etc. So, yeah, I loved it. I thought it was so clever. Everyone should read The Dead Queen's Club. I want to read it. Like, I it actually, is so great. I actually want to read it. I'm totally yeah. just And it sounds, it sounds like the worst possible thing. And I have read, there's another, actually there's a few other Henry VIII in high school novels, um, and there's another one that I read that was absolutely terrible. So bad. And I thought, oh, this will be like that. But it was the opposite. It was just, ah, oh, chef's kiss. It was amazing. So, so do you find that you can wear two reading hats? You know, you can actually, to, you know, sort of convince yeah. yourself that sometimes you're doing research reading and sometimes you're doing pleasure reading. Um, and it doesn't no, all get... No, 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 it doesn't get... Like, I, I always feel like... And I mean, I read... You know, as I tell my students, I read with a pen in my hand when I'm research reading. Um, but, yeah, usually I'm reading in a different kind of mode and I don't read for enjoyment. But I found that when I was reading this, even though I was reading it for a specific purpose, I just sort of became carried away by it. And, you know, there is... Look, I'm obviously interested in the Tudors and how history is represented in fiction, right? My, my interest in historical fiction is where all this comes from. But... Um, it is really dull eventually to read the same two events to two to three hundred times. Like, take my hat off. To <laughs> I've read it all. Um, yeah, it is, which hence my lack of leisure reading this year. But um, when you see something that uses the same events and reinterprets them in such a clever, funny, light, feminist way, I was just like, oh, so excited. Right. Yay. Yay. Dead Queen's Club. Go read it. Not so good. Oh. Well, the other book that I brought in, um, and it's what it's actually translated from the French. It's called The Lost Estate, and mm-hmm. it's was written in 1970. 17. Henri Alain Fournier uh, actually died, I think, in the First World War. Oh wow! Because um, actually, this is one I read. A while ago and I remember reading up on him I know he died young and he died uh, and I'm almost 100% sure it was the first world war mm-hmm. um, and I didn't doubt myself until I said it and then I thought oh do I know that fact or um, so it might need the, um, the, the the google but you know it, it's one of those it's it's a book which Died 1914. Yeah, yeah. Did he, it didn't, didn't say... Died 1914. Oh, okay, so... Yeah. Um, so, oh my God, yeah. It was published in 1913, Michelle. 1913. Anyway, go on. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> th
that I loved it was because once again, I really felt that I was taken into this completely other world that was um, actually exploring, in, in a sense, obsessions and you know sort of the dark human currents where we where we sort of had a it, it starts off with um the the the, the, the narrator who is uh the, the son of a, a schoolmaster in in a in a sort of small village in 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 France um where you know sort of the two the two main characters come together when uh we've got the um, the Grand Monet, who comes from Paris and to study at the at the little rural school and sort of entrances all of the local students and um, but then mysteriously disappears for three days when he oh. he has the intention of going and picking up um, the the grandparents early and surprising everyone mm. but essentially he's he's sort of stealing a horse and carriage. And riding off to the next village in order to pick up the the grandparents and arrive triumphant before anyone else with them, um, but he doesn't come back and he doesn't come back for three days, mm-hmm. and those three days transform him entirely into a, a sort of a a, 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 a a morose, somewhat sort of obsessive character who then exists only to return to this lost estate mm. um, which you know you think is going to potentially take you into a magical realm but it's not it never it, there's there's the carnivalesque there's uh you know sort of the commedia dell'arte characters who come through um because the, the premise was that a, a, a son, a very young son, decides he's going to marry and his permissive father, even though the son's 17 or something like that, actually puts on an enormous wedding. And, of course, it's the dying estate. It's the nobility sort of at the end. So he doesn't have the funds for it. He doesn't. So it's all right on that sort of edge between being um, sort of opulent but also just the, the, the edge of, um, I guess, uh, impoverishment as well. So everything's rough around the edges and the characters who come to entertain. And so the whole estate is transformed into this sort of semi-carnival cir- a circus that he just happens to arrive at that time. And, of course, the, the bride actually changes her mind and decides not to marry the, the young groom who then... Uh, tries to put a bullet through his head so it's really it's very dark and it's much darker and it's it actually sort of plays with themes of the grotesque Mm. in a a way that's surprising because all the way through you i think it it, it seems as though it's going to be another sort of story and yet it at at the moment when you think it's going to fulfill that you know sort of um happy ending or the the sort of the 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 magical transformation or Or the fairy tale or the fairy tale anytime you think that's going to happen it sort of deviates and you know somebody somebody dies something happens you discover because I I found it quite a especially given the the context of the story the era that it was set you know sort of the moment when that lost Mm. prince sort of comes back and reveals the fact that he's run off with a circus and um that actually he did 
put a bullet through his head, which is why he has a, a bandage that keeps bleeding. Wow. <laughs> you know, so, so, so it's, this, it's this sort of, it's this, it's this constant sort of movement between, you know, sort of the carnivalesque, the grotesque, the dark, um, and yet, you know, sort of this steady, um, congenial narrator who, who's sort of, you know, sort of holding it together, not doing anything, slightly crippled. Um, Lots of grotesquery in your books. I guess, I guess, I guess there is, but uh, I, I think there's just something. It, it's the unexpectedness of it, yeah. and it's the way that the story starts out, and you think it's going to be almost, um, I guess, Dickensian mm. in the schoolyard and the, um, you know, sort of the storyline where you, you just can't imagine where the story will go, and in a sense, it does become this sort of questioning of the characters who are so often the heroes of books, you know, the ones yeah. who are compelled to act or, mm. you know, sort of who won't give up, um, you know, or who go to extreme lengths, those extreme characters. And in this story, um, actually, you are really left with a very uncomfortable feeling about those extreme um, drives yeah. and desires. Oh, that so, sounds really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I loved it from that point of view because, you know, as I say, I thought I was going somewhere, I ended up somewhere else. And then with this sort of moment, with this returning of the character um, who actually leaves his bride, you know, he marries and then just runs off so that he can try and put everything back together again in this really um, sort of almost... Um, compulsive way mm. um it, it, it yeah at every moment there was just this turn and I, and i think because of that uh reframing of the 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 the, the, the hero um and just i think that steadiness of that narrator all the way through pulling the story along um yeah i really loved it um, that sounds yeah. super clever yeah yeah it was just mm. it was just one it was i think it was a book that entranced and enchanted but in a way that wouldn't allow you to relax into it. You know, yeah, it, yeah, was, yeah. it was just, there were just these moments when he had to carry the corpse down the stairs and, and you just, it's just, it's just the, the things that you weren't expecting and, and the way that it was told. Yeah. Um, but also I think just that, that really subversive treatment of those, um, you know, sort of typical heroic characters mm. that I think I loved most. Mm, wow, that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> what a discovery. Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like I should have read, I feel as though it's one of those books that I should have read centuries ago, well, not centuries ago, but <laughs> at least decades ago. Uh, yeah. um, and yet I hadn't, and I'm so pleased that I just stumbled across it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's The Lost Estate. Um, sounds great. Well, my, my final pick is a verse novel. Um, it's called Bloodwater Paint by Joy McCulloch. Um, it actually came out technically in 2018, but I believe it only came out in Australia in 2019. Um, and this is, it was actually also marketed as YA, but I don't think it actually is YA. I think it was a, it's a verse novel. It's really beautifully written. I think the only reason it got put in the YA box is because it's about a teenage girl. Mm. Um, and that teenage girl is the um, Renaissance painter Artemisia Gentileschi. Oh, oh no way! Yeah. Oh, um, fantastic! Oh my goodness! Yeah. Really? So yeah. I've been I have been reading all sorts of interesting things this year. Um, anyway, so this is um, from written from her perspective. It is about um, so Artemisia, Artemisia Gentileschi, as I said, an Italian Renaissance painter. Um, she um, studied. Well, she sort of was you know 
perceived to have a very Caravaggio-esque style. Um, she does that great. Um, she has that great p- painting of um, Judith killing Holofernes, cutting off his head, which is an amazing painting. And this is about her rape because she was infamously raped by one of her father's um, apprentices um, when she was quite young. Um, when she was a teenager, so he had he was a painting teacher, and she had, so he had all of these kind of apprentice painters coming into his workshop, and she was raped by one of them. Um, so again, <laughs> another book about rape this year. Um, so many of the um, the poems go in and out of memory. So we you know we come from a perspective of, of this this event having happened. We go into the past. We we go into the future. Some of the poems are actually about um, the paintings themselves. Um, and as well as memories of her mother, etc. So it jumps all over in time. It doesn't really have a linear narrative, but you can still follow along. If you didn't know much about Artemisia Gentileschi, there's no problem with following along her story. Um, some of the poems, as I said, are about her paintings. Some of the, the poems are actually less about the composition of the paintings themselves um, and more about the stories, the biblical stories or the mythological stories um, of the paintings. And so that's an yeah. interesting story behind the the, the Judith, Judith. Holof- yeah Holofernes as well. Yes, she becomes a kind of character in the story, and Susanna and the Elders is another one that is taken up. And as after she's raped, they the characters that she paints, even though she hasn't painted them yet, um, become almost the way that she gets over the rape, not gets over the rape, but the way so she Judith, deals with the rape. Judith was sent. Judith was a prisoner. Yeah. Well, she was, she, yeah, she's, and she is going to sort of pretend to sleep with Holofernes um, in order to get her husband back. Um, and then she beheads him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Susanna and the Elders is a story about um, Susanna having a bath and these um, old men looking at her. And she objects to this when really she shouldn't have objected to this according to the social standards of the time because she was outside naked, so what do you expect? And also men can do whatever they want and there are no consequences. Um, So, yeah, her stories are about, you know, men's less than great behaviour towards women and they become a kind of touchstone for her even though she hasn't actually painted the paintings yet that she would go on to do in her adulthood. She's considering those stories and she sort of uses the characters from the paintings as a kind of feminist sisterhood thing um, where they help those stories help and support her when she's trying to deal with her trauma as well as the story of her mother who is not a famous person she's just you know her mother um she uses um her mother's experiences as a touchstone for her own so there are these beautiful poems that feed together into a narrative about um women sexual assault women's um the way that women have been treated by history the way women have been treated in uh, mythology and in the bible etc and it all becomes a part of the tapestry of, of artemisia's experiences in this brilliant way it is so well written um, beautiful, simple, but very effective poetry, I think. Um, she does a lot with um, space. Often they're quite, you know, even though these are narrative poems in that they have to tell a story, they're not very talky. <laughs> they're quite pared back. They only give you the information that you kind of need. And it's so strange that it was put in a young adult yeah, I don't... category because you think what that story 
would do outside a young adult yeah because you know that that sort of genre classification yeah you know it really does so much to shape the reception the reception of of yeah um, a work and i haven't seen any buzz about it at all i um, wonder if it's gone i mean because yeah. you know like there's already the perception that there's there's a there's a divide between sort of the, the young adult and, and the, the literary the fiction, fiction poetry, yeah all that sort of thing mm. so to make that call seems Really bizarre. Was it, is it what sort of what publishing? I can't remember who publishes it. Yeah. yeah, but I don't think it has got the attention that it deserves because of that yeah. um, categorization. Because you know, I think that there is a lot of value in giving this to a teenage girl because I think that because she is, we never see Artemisia in it in adulthood. We only see her just prior to the rape and after the rape. But it's also really, th- these sorts of historical narratives are really important to making sense of the world that we live in today. Yeah, because, absolutely. I mean, I think you could quite, you know, sort of, even if you don't sort of um, occupy a, a sort of an art realm, you generally have a sense of Caravaggio, Michelangelo, yeah, you know, yeah, all yeah. this sort of stuff. Yeah, they, but yeah. you don't necessarily have that sense that actually there were women who were painting magnificent stuff. Yeah. Um, and the stories of, uh, you know, particularly um, Artemisia, you know, the Gentileska mm. story where it's it's one of rape and it was, I mean, there was the court case yeah. around it, so it wasn't as though it was hidden. Yeah, or and very was, unusual for a rape case to be taken to court. And I, yeah. and I think she was actually very vocal in yeah. her own mm. defence and they ruled in her favour, which I think mm. was another thing that was unusual yeah, very. at the time. Mm. Um, so, 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 you know, you... you and then that idea of the importance of having precedence in order mm. of trying to make sense of your place in the world and, and how you're actually going to recover from, you know, sort of trauma or, you know, sort of what, what whatever it is that, um, you know, sort of society is, is, is pushing at you. And the absence, the relative absence, because actually it's difficult to find, you know, sort of powerful biblical stories of women. Yeah. Which is why I think Judith is such an I mean there's there's so much thought that's gone into choosing mm. um you know sort of the story of Judith in itself. yeah that's right and then when you think about I think there's other I think there's other representations of Judith yes um and then sort of you get this um sort of compare and contrast that happens outside and that you know that this you know sort of thinking human being with agency um and brilliance has you know sort of forcefully inserted herself into you know sort of this very sort of um you know sort of patriarchal man's yeah. world in a way that was would have required such exceptionality yeah well um, quite and she talks that you know many of the poems are about you know as much as it's about um, rape and trauma and um, abuse and so forth it's also about painting and being a woman painter and um the the issue for artemisia a lot of for a lot of um the book is that she's far more talented than the men, but because she is a woman, she's a woman. Um, she's relegated to the backstage. You know, she she can go in and correct people's paintings mm. and help them out, or do the out do the tracing of the outline, um, but not you know carry forth the work. But you also realise that if um, Gentileschi hadn't been born into a painting family, yeah. she would she would have had never no have existed. Yes. I mean, it just would, because I think people often wrestle with the fact so that, you know, sort of on one hand you can say, well, you know, sort of, of course, women, you know, weren't as well known because they didn't get the same opportunities. But I think that until you actually have concrete examples yeah. of, you know, sort of the facticity of, mm. of, you know, sort of the, 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 the talent and the brilliance, 
that you that you can actually make sense of why you know it, it was so very hard for women to yeah. to make it absolutely um, and I think if you do a kind of lay survey of you know Renaissance painters people most people would assume that there weren't any women but there were women of course working um and you're right the only reason that she was even able to do that is because she happened to be born her talent would have laid latent and she would never have had because i mean even with all of that talent you still need a certain level of training you need training and you need support you need to be introduced to people you need to um have the opportunity you know like go back to wolves you know woman needs a a room of her own and, and an income um, in order to make art, and you know, we see that you know she she's lucky to be born into the conditions that she's in, in, but she's also incredibly still even in those kind of you know privileged conditions of working of you know living basically in an art studio. She still has to struggle and fight, and and you know she her her success was by no means guaranteed, and you know she had to really um, assert herself in order to be taken seriously at all, and not just to be. The wife because that's what her family wants for her is to marry and for her to be a wife and she does get married at the end of the book as she did in real life but that doesn't stop her art career and etc etc so and she and she you know makes these paints these um, amazing paintings after the action of the novel but you know that it's coming you know those paintings have been talked about already so I found it just brilliant I loved it I don't think it's a YA novel I think that you could give it very comfortably to teenage girls it's not hard to read um, so in that sense, I think it's it could be considered a kind of crossover, but, but it's then that's more from a sort of a moral, point yeah, of view, instructional point yeah. of view rather than actually sort of which you know you don't need a, a book to be categorised as a yeah. young adult in yeah. order to give it to young and, girls. And just because, and I think too that we're very quick to put that YA label on things because they're about teenage girls as if yeah, like the only people that would is... be interested in teenage girls are other teenage girls when actually. This Teenage, is a story. This is a story. Yeah. Value. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder you know. if there's room. Maybe we can push for a second edition where it's released, you know, as a as full-flung in, literary yeah. um, text. Because I think that's the sort of because otherwise these stories just have a habit of, um, you know, sort of petering out. Yeah, like and, I've heard nothing about it, and it's so clever and yeah, so but, 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 good. But you just you just wouldn't because it's it's you know there's such divisions in the yeah. way that um, you know sort of that literary world is organised. Um, that, but you can also imagine a world where the only way that she could get it published was by you know yeah. pitching it as well, that's, a story that's really good for young girls to read. Well, that's quite um, right because it is a adverse novel, which yeah. is a harder sell. Yeah. Um, let's face it, you know the literary world is all yeah, about. Yeah, there's such money. great. You know, yeah, first novels that are out there, like you know, I mean, like Grip. Yeah, exactly. The, the, but yeah. I think that they're a harder sell, a harder proposition, yeah. a first novel. Um, even though the the poetry in it is beautiful and very well written, but it's not, um, it's not hard. It's quite accessible, I think. Um, as I said, narrative poems, but not in any kind of wordy way. They only she only gives you what you need. It's very sparse. Um, some poems can range over 10 pages. Is she, is she a poet? Or has uh, she yeah, she's previous? a poet, yeah. yeah. Some poems can be 10 pages long. Some poems can be three lines long. Um, you know, there's different lengths, different styles. Um, but, yeah, I found it. I just absolutely loved it. I thought it was great. Oh, it needs yeah. to be more well. And, I, and I, I'm kind of interested in how literature is responding to the Me Too movement. That's yeah. been a kind of like a, a lay interest of mine. Um, and I think this is another kind of... 
intervention into that in a, in that it's giving historic it has the potential to be an intervention into yeah. that but it's not going to if it doesn't, if it doesn't yeah but I, clearly I think it's been written in the in I mean it came out in 2018 so maybe it was it was probably written beforehand but it is thinking through you know the, this has always happened to women this is the ways in which we've grappled with it it's not a new phenomenon this is it's just not been talked about it's been something that you know, women were expected to keep silent about Always it. Artem- supposed to wear it as a as shame. Yeah, and Artemisia refuses to do that, and she she takes it to court. She says, "No, this is unacceptable." And the way that she takes it to court is the only way that she can, which is to claim that it's dam- that she is now dam- her father takes it to court to say that she's now damaged goods. So but that's the only way. And and but the preparedness to speak out, yeah, exactly, to insist upon it as an act of violence, yes, um, and to say that it is not right, that yeah. I'm not just going to take it, I'm not just damaged. I, you know, she's taking it under the guise of being damaged goods, but she's saying actually this was a an she's act committed upon that. me, not something that signals some kind of lack in me that I'm now lesser. It was actually it's your fault, it's not my fault. Oh, Stephanie, you, mm. I. You're yeah. my guru. I'm, I'm going to... Um, I read a lot of, like, really dark stuff, apparently, as well as novels about Henry VIII as a teenage boy. <laughs> <laughs> I think that next time I am... I'm, I'm just going to send you an email and I'm going to say, Stephanie, I need some recommendations. We can go book shopping um, together. I'm an excellent bookshopper. I spend way too much money on books. Has no, anyone who's well, seen my office... That's a that's a richness that you know you can't you can't put a, a number on. So that's right. No. I scrimp and save in every other regard, but not on books. No, well, honestly, I am really. <laughs> I think I might. My my memory is that I do say this at the end of each Probably. of my podcasts. Um, but the books that you recommend, um, I I want to read. I want to read your books too. Well, you know we can. I, we can swap. We can swap. Swapsies. Um, swapsies. And it's lovely to be back. I would never have thought that um, the year would go so quickly. I know. Um, I know. But it's a pleasure to be back here. I know. In the podcast studio. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for coming in and talking to me about your favourite books. And we will <laughs> we will reconvene um, in January 2021, although obviously we will podcast before then. Um, so thanks once again, Michelle. Thank you, Stephanie. So this has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. If you could please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be really, really helpful. Um, If you've got any books that you want to tell us about, you can drop us a line at fromthelighthouse.org. We're always open to emails and suggestions, and we'll see you again in about two weeks. Bye.